We'll get into the sermon in a minute, but I have a couple minute PSA, public service announcement. I wrote it down. Sometimes I don't write things down, but I'm getting older. I'm officially middle-aged, so you got to write things down, and that's where I'm at. So um, first, after a long, arduous planning and searching and raising the funds, ladies, some of you might have noticed, but your bathroom downstairs is not a bathroom right now. It's getting remodeled, which is awesome, so that's really cool, but for the next three weeks, you can't use it the way you normally use it, so don't even try. There's some wood. Don't, do not enter. That's what I'm saying. There's a handicapped bathroom in the middle. And for those of you who don't know, to get a few extra steps on your Fitbit device thing, we have a bathroom upstairs. So if you want to go upstairs, there's a bathroom right in the middle of the hall. So ladies, your bathroom is on the way. I will listen to color suggestions for three seconds. Ready? Go. Done. All right. There we go. We got it. That's all we're doing with that. Because <laughs> otherwise, there's, it, it's going to be beautiful, I think. So um, it's going to be wonderful. So look for that second week of January-ish. Um, and we'll get that going. Next public service announcement, January 1st, New Year's Day. We will have our annual meeting here for First Baptist Church members. I will, this might either get you to church or get you to run away. That Sunday, I'm going to preach a sermon on giving. What the Bible says about giving. Because I think there's some misnomers, right? There's a couple of sides. Some people are very strict and say, you must give this or you won't go to heaven. They actually say that. The Bible doesn't say that, by the way. So come and hear what the Bible doesn't say, but also hear what the Bible says about giving. And God's been very gracious and blessed us tremendously. And we'll uh, I'll share briefly um, during the sermon what came in last year, donation-wise, tithe-wise, all of it, down to the penny, and what we're spending it on. And as we go forward as a church, we're going to try and do that every year to be as transparent as we can. Because uh, when I used to attend church and not preach and help lead, I like to hear the truth about the pennies, amen? It's a good thing, because we're all in this together. So we'll do that on the first. Right after service, there will be about a five-minute meeting. We will be voting on deacons. We have a few names for you. Here's the nominees for deacons. Russ Fung. I don't know about him. We'll have to see about that one. Russ, you better start lobbying. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, right? Uh, Steve Radosha and uh, Sam Thomas. Linda, officially, but I call her Sam. Uh, these people want to serve on your deacon board. It's a three-year term. We'll vote on them. It's not like the election we just had. It's very loving and kind and gracious. And Margie Bellison has said, I will take the notes, right? Where are you at, Margie? Be the church clerk. So um, that'll be detailed, right? Very good, very good. That'll be uh, on the first um, New Year's Day. And last but not least, join us this Saturday. We'll have our Christmas Eve service. It's not going to rain. Praise God. We'll be in here. We'll have a communion service. We will end up out there in that courtyard. There'll be a small bonfire to keep a little bit warm, but we'll end uh, candlelit, uh, singing a couple of hymns and bringing in the Christmas season that way. Please join us. 5 p.m. The service should not go more than 50 minutes. And again, there won't be any fellowship after that. And on Christmas morning, same thing. No Sunday school for adults. No Sunday school for kids. Worship service at 10 a.m. on Christmas morning. No food and fellowship after. We're ushering you off lovingly to your families. Okay? We'll do that way. There's lots more announcements, but whew, my three minutes is up. Check your bulletin, receive the emails. Let me pray, and we'll get into our sermon. See, I'm not cold anymore. That's a good thing, so I'm moving around. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this season. Thank you for the events and activities going on. Uh, thank you for a chance to slow down for a few minutes on a Sunday morning and sing and hear and pray and laugh and 
be joyful for Vin and others who are recovering, but also pray for those who are not feeling well, per se. We do thank you for traveling mercies for many people and ask that you would continue those as many of us travel through the holidays. In the next few moments, Lord, give me the grace to put before all of us, human beings, your people, your love. And I pray for grace because in some ways that's impossible. So Holy Spirit, come and show us what the love of God looks, feels, sees, knows all things, your son. Jesus, come in Jesus' name, amen. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus, in his teachings, mostly told stories? Ever think about that when you read the Gospels, if you read the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? A lot of the didactic teaching we get, especially in the New Testament, was from the apostles. And they had reasons to do it that way. They had reasons to break things down because there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of, it used to be this way. And Paul would say, I know it used to be that way, but now it's this way because Jesus said it was this way. And Peter, we love Peter. Peter would say it a little loudly. It's not that way anymore, right? And the author of Hebrews is a little snarky. And he would say things like, well, I guess if the blood of bulls and goats covered you for a season, the eternal blood of Christ will cover you for eternity. So he would teach that way, the author. But Jesus didn't necessarily teach that way. We as a church, if you haven't been here, spent six months on the Sermon on the Mount and saw Jesus teaching in his most systematic way. That's as good as it gets for Jesus. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But many other things in the Gospels are recorded as parables or historical writings, Jesus going and doing things. I think there's a point. I think there's a reason for that. Jesus didn't simply spit out facts about God. He could have. Would have blown everyone's mind. He just didn't spit out statistics about God in the universe. He could have. And in the long road, we see some of that. But he talked more about Regular situations to regular people in the day he was living, and these were mainly called parables. Parables are cute little stories. Some of them aren't cute because they cut to the heart, and it's like, oh! But the problem sometimes, I think, with us being 2,000 years removed, is we think parables belong in children's church and on Hallmark cards. And we don't see them for what they are. Parables, I believe... Jesus gave trying to wake us up. And in his goodness, he said, all of you, all humans, all civilized history is conditioned from birth to think and live a certain way depending on when you were born and where you live. I grew up in the 80s in America and I was conditioned to believe in the American dream. It's not the worst thing that has ever, someone's been conditioned, but it has its faults, right? People from other parts of the world were conditioned in a different way. But Jesus tells parables, I believe, mainly to wake us up to another reality, and that's the kingdom of God. This unseen kingdom. You can see its workings, but you can't see the temple per se, because Jesus says, I'm the temple when he lived, and he ascended. And there's theological importance there. But the parables Jesus teaches can be about salvation, can be about forgiveness, 
can be about mercy, can be about judgment. But all of them swirl with this thing called grace. And it is a curious grace. Why is grace curious? I'm here to tell you, grace is not fair. And that's good for us. I'll put myself in the middle. The grace of God is not giving what Dave Johnson deserves, and I'm happy about that, because God's good, and he's provided grace for me, and grace is available. So Jesus teaches in parables often, and this morning we reflect on love. Advent, here we go. I misspoke last week, so forgive me. Three weeks ago, we looked at hope, the hope that Messiah offers. Two weeks ago, we looked at peace, the real peace he offers, not some spiritual mumbo-jumbo you see on daytime TV. Peace, both physically, I'll say spiritually, but also in a civilized way. I saw a great tweet this week. It said, Jesus never asked you to ask him into his heart. Jesus said, come and follow me. Oh, I'll say it again. Jesus never asked you to ask him into his heart. Jesus said to people, come and follow me. And he walked the path of peace. And he provides peace. And, and the juxtaposition there is when we just ask Jesus into our heart, we punch our ticket to heaven and not much else changes, statistics say. But when we intentionally follow Jesus, everything changes. And maybe the heat's cranked up a little bit in certain areas. Because Jesus says, I know your family's rotten sometimes, but forgive them seven times 70 or infinitely. Follow him in that. Last week with a lot of our kids, uh, we were talking about joy. And I tried to preach quickly about joy and wonder are kind of uh, synonymous in some ways. They're cousins. And the joy that we find in the Christmas story is the angels were great and Joseph and Mary were great. But the joy that should bring warmth to our heart is God was laid in a manger. God is humble and that should bring us joy. And today, I'll try and light it. We're going to talk about love. The Bible says a lot about love. There's many verses, hundreds. Let me throw a few up there for you. Back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 32, God speaks this through the prophet. God's saying this about people, his people. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Believe it or not, that's good. Verse 41, God says, I will rejoice in doing good to them, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. We don't see love per se, but that's love. That's a loving God saying, this is my heart for people. Here it is. I'm faithful. You guys struggle with faithfulness as a human species, not just, you know, Relationally, but sometimes we struggle with faithfulness. God doesn't. We could preach on that for four weeks. Next, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is loving. This is what happened on the cross in a, I'll say, a forensic way or almost a criminal court way. There's a transaction being paid. And Paul writes it this way. God made Jesus sin so we could be forgiven. That's loving, but sometimes we go, okay. That's almost the coffee, Starbucks verse we talk about, right? Because it's huge, but it's love. Next verse from Colossians. 
I think it's there. Is it there? Did I give it to you? There it is. Paul saying this, and when you were dead in your trespasses and in circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's loving, especially if you've ever forgiven someone or been what? Forgiven. <laughs> Next verse. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, again, forensic language, you can spend a lot of time on that. This he, God, set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's why the cross is the coronation of Jesus. That's where the final business was done. Last verse. He, speaking of Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him, them in him. That's all loving. I don't want to freak you out. Jesus and the Holy Spirit gave that to the apostles. He never said that, which he did, but he didn't. It never came out of his mouth when he was a human being, but it was given, and I want to see the correlation. All of that's true. All of that's loving. All of that is like balm to the dry lips of a human being, chapstick to your lips when they're cracking. We go, oh, but let's look at Jesus, per se, to tie it all in. Again, these parables are a bit mysterious, and they mean many things. I heard one preacher defiantly say, every single parable is about salvation, and we're done. And I'm like, oh, man, I, I think there's more. He's smarter than me, so I won't know, but I think there's more. Let me tell you about a guy named William. We call him Bill. Bill was born in 1959, the good old days. Ah, maybe not, maybe so. Okay? Bill was born in and around the Bay Area. Bill started going to school, as most kids do, and he met Karen. And everyone, ooh, goo goo gaga, whatever. Junior high, high school, whatever. When Bill was 21 and when Karen was 20, they were married. And all the contemporaries said what? You guys are too young. But nevertheless, they were married. In 1980, they settled down in the Bay Area. For those of you who don't believe me, it was, I guess it was easier to settle down back then. My parents did it. And it was more affordable. And Bill started a construction company. And... Uh, in the next decade, there was lots of building, kind of like there is now, so he began to do very well. He was a hard worker. He was a faithful husband. Karen, even early on, helped him out in the office with all the clerical stuff because it wasn't Bill's strong suit. He just liked to do the things, okay? What happens next sometimes in marriages? In 1985, five years after they were married, Christopher shows up. Baby boy, beautiful, healthy, everyone's happy. Three years after that, in 1988, another boy shows up, and his name is Ryan. Two boys, a house, a business, a marriage, everything is going great. Bill's company continues to grow, and soon he employs many people in helping many families with this business. In 1991, out of the blue, Karen passes away. Bill's and the kids' worlds are 
rock to the core. Um, sadness and grief, obviously, and things change. But Bill being a faithful husband and faithful father and a noble man in quotes, you know what I'm trying to say? Decides to raise his boys as a single man because he thinks that would honor Karen's memory. And he raised his boys as a single dad. Both of them go to local high schools in the area. Both of them try sports. Some of them sports were good, some were bad. They both graduate from high school in the middle. Have any in the middle students? Some of you guys are real smart. And instead of going to college, they both start working for dad. And things are going great. The story goes that Christopher looks like Karen, but Ryan acts like Karen, so it brings some comfort to Bill, because he kind of has both sometimes, right? And the company continues to grow. And Christopher, being older, starts to manage a crew and manage projects. And buildings start to pop up like we've seen all over the area. And Ryan um, is kind of the snotty-nosed little brother growing up. And he starts doing the same thing, and there's that competitive thing, and he really wants to be a better employee, and one day a co-owner with Christopher. So at first, he goes off the gangbusters. But a couple years in, he sees his friends, and they're having their college experiences and all these different things, and he begins to become dismayed. And he begins to have doubts, Ryan does, when he's early 20s, and say, I could have, would have, should have. Think of that about a 21-year-old guy. He's like, you still have time. But in Ryan's mind, no way. And so after lots of thought, after talking to Christopher, Ryan says, Dad, can we talk? Bill says, yeah, son, I love you. What's up? And Ryan says, Dad, the construction game is not for me. You've been successful. You and Chris are rocking. I love you for all the opportunity, but I'm really into these computer things, computer world and tech world. Can you make some calls? I know you're connected. Can you give me some money? And I want to start a business. And Bill sits there, and he's wise and sizes things up and asks the questions. Ryan had all the answers. He knew about startups. He knew about investments. He knew about evaluations. He knew about uh, the thing called venture capital. He knew everything. And Bill, in some ways, reluctantly wrote a check for Ryan for $1.2 million. And Ryan promised that whatever he, I'll say it this way, whatever money he made, he would give Bill 33%, a third. Both parties agreed it was a good investment, it was a good opportunity, and Ryan was jazzed. Ryan told his dad he needed to fly to Austin, Texas for the weekend to meet with some people. And he'll be back and they'll do things. And he's excited. Two days later, Ryan disappears. He's gone. A couple days go by. Bill calls Ryan. Phone's not picked up. No voicemail, whatever, full, whatever. A week goes by. No contact. Christopher calls a couple of mutual friends. No, we haven't heard from him. I don't know about Ryan. Is he okay? I don't know what's going on. Bill then calls his business associates, who he tried to set Ryan up with. We haven't heard from him, and it's been a month. We don't know what's going on, Bill. If we can help out in any way, let us know.
Ryan did not fly to Austin, Texas. Ryan flew to Costa Rica to go surfing. And Ryan began to live like a king in Central America and migrated his way down through Argentina and over to Brazil, per se, I know, you know, geography. And he lived like a king for 22 months. And Ryan did what men with money do all over the world. Women, booze, some drugs, and some failed business ventures and some robbings. In 22 months, Ryan blew through $1.2 million. And reality came crashing down to a 23-year-old. Because of the kindness and the goodness of a, a restaurant owner who saw Ryan kind of sleeping on the park bench, he said, do you need a job? And Ryan, who spoke Spanish pretty well by then, said, I could use some money. So he started washing dishes, which is a noble profession, right? To make ends meet. Meanwhile, back home, Bill and Christopher pretty much thought their son and brother were gone, dead. One night, about 11 p.m., in the back of a hot, sweaty kitchen, Ryan is going to town, and if you've ever seen like a small commercial dishwasher, they're like a sanitation machine, they're usually some, some form of stainless steel. He's doing his thing and sweating and making his money, and he looks up, and he sees his reflection, and he doesn't even recognize himself. It's as if he's my age, 42. He's aged 20 years. He sees wrinkles and scars, and he doesn't even get a chance to think, but tears start streaming down his face, and he begins to weep in the back of this kitchen. And the owner comes in and said, did you hurt yourself? What's wrong? And Ryan says, I got to go. I'll see you tomorrow. And over the next few days, Ryan remembers how good his father is, Bill. He remembers how kind and noble and loving, and Ryan laments the point of vomiting on how poorly he's treated his father. And we'll say it this way, Ryan's, Ryan comes to his senses outside of Sao Paulo in Brazil and says, I got to change. Something's got to give. I'm going to go back to my dad, beg for forgiveness, and ask to be a worker on his crew just to pay rent and make this right. My situation, my life, my lying, my cheating. He comes to realization. The next morning he shows up to work and he, he tells the plight to uh, his, uh, I guess his boss, the owner of the restaurant, and the, the boss says, Ryan, my wife and I know, knew you weren't supposed to be here the, the last six months. What are you doing here still? And the, the boss is very gracious, and the boss says, if you work for the next eight weeks, my wife and I will pay for half your ticket home. So Ryan eats rice and beans and everything else for eight weeks, saves everything, and hops on a flight to SFO. Ryan lands, and kind of the honeymoon's over at that point. It becomes real now, right? 
The sounds bring back memories. The smells bring back memories. The fog is like comforting, but also my dad's only 15 miles away, so there's a ooh. And Bill lives in the Belmont Hills. And Ryan scratches enough money to get a taxi and shows up on the, not the front porch, but we'll say the curb of his dad's house. You know some of the Belmont Hills? They had those long staircases on the way up. He's got no bags. He's got no phone. It's him. And he tries to take a step. And he is petrified of what his father is going to what? Say. How dare you? You are dead to me would have been appropriate. Amen. You are dead to this family would have been justified. You will receive nothing else. You wasted it all, son. Have a nice day. Ryan was prepared for all that because it would have been right. And we could have argued it, right? If we went down to superior court, the judge would have said, Ryan, you have no stand to stand on or stool to sit on. Go home and go work somewhere. But before Ryan could take his first step, the front door opens wide and Bill starts sprinting as a 71-year-old man down the long stairway and he trips and falls on his face right before his son. He gets up and he embraces his son and he begins to weep with tears of joy. Son, it's so good to see you. Son, I love you. Son, oh my goodness, you're home. And he starts shouting at the neighbors, and the neighbors go, 5150, like call the M, like what's going on? But Bill is elated that Ryan is home. And he kisses him, and it's not weird. And he hugs him, and it's beautiful. And he drags him upstairs, and he says, come get warm, come eat. Oh my gosh, you've lost 20 pounds. What is going, let me take care of you. And Ryan, all he does for the rest of the night is weep at his father's kitchen table and says, Dad, why are you being so good to me? I do not deserve this. Why are you being so kind to me? I do not deserve this. And Bill, being a wise father, says, those conversations will come, but not tonight. Eat some more food. Go sleep in your old bed. Get some rest, son. So Ryan gets up the next morning, and he tiptoes into the kitchen because he still knows. He's like, what? <laughs> he's still. And oatmeal and coffee are waiting. Bill's been up. And Bill says, I have a plan for you today. we got to get you some clothes. He says, we're not going to the mall. You blew that one. But we'll go to Target. We'll fix you up. We'll get you some work boots, and we'll go get you a used truck down the street. And Ryan's like, what's going on? And Bill says, you're home. You need a job. I have work. I want you to go run your crew again. And Ryan is freaking out. And then Bill says, I sent out an Evite. We're going to run out town restaurant in San Carlos, and we're going to have a big party on Saturday night. And guess what? You're the guest of honor, and it's a welcome home party. And I'm going to spare no expense. People are going to have steak and lobster. I don't care. You are home. Bill drops Ryan near the job site, and Christopher sees. And you ever just know something and don't even need to hear a conversation? You just see it, and you know exactly what's happening. 
And Christopher gets in his truck and drives away. And his dad calls him. Bill calls Christopher four times in automatic voicemail. I don't want to talk to you. So Christopher and Bill don't talk for four days. 5 p.m. that Saturday, town is closed, it's full. All of us are there, whoever's there, family and friends, and we're hooting and hollering. And they have good appetizers, so I've been told. So we're having those too. And the drinks are flowing, and they even bring in a band, and there's a little shaking going on up there, you know what I mean? And people are having a great time. Christopher, the older brother, shows up, walks in, and walks out. And Bill sees his son and is elated that he's there, chases him down Laurel Street. And Bill turns his son around and says, what is going on? And Christopher, who has always been very respectful and has always honored his father, looked at him and said a word I can't repeat in church a couple times. And then he listed the things his brother, younger brother, is. Dad, he's a con artist. He is conning you right now. He's a cheat. He's a liar. He's a druggie. He sleeps with every woman that he finds attractive. And you are being conned. And Bill concedes on a few issues and says, you might be right. And then over and over and over again, Christopher screams, people are looking now, why are you doing this? Why did you get him a nicer truck than me? We think that way sometimes, right? When's the last time we went on a shopping spree, Dad? I was in high school. He's 23. And over and over, Christopher says the truth in many ways, right? Here it is. And Bill, in his own heart, per se, says and thinks, maybe I overdid it with the truck. Maybe I overdid it with town. We should have went to Chipotle. But over and over, what Bill keeps telling Christopher, your brother was dead and now he is alive. Your brother was lost and now he is found. Your brother was gone and he is back here with us. You got to get over the other things. And here's the problem with the parables. I just told you Luke 15. Many of you already know that. The problem is, is we don't take, I don't, I'll speak for myself. I don't take Jesus' last words in the parables to heart enough. Because I start to justify all the what ifs and coulda, woulda, shouldas. And why are you getting taken advantage of? And Luke 15, the whole chapter, and the chapter halfway after that, Luke 16, talks about the love of God immensely in parables. See, we read a few verses, and they're all true. And I'll say it this way. They are more true with the shadow of the prodigal son screaming forth. You know what I mean by shadow? With the canvas of the prodigal son, that story of Curious grace, forgiving people of heinous things which I've done, and then welcoming these people into family and putting on a robe and cleaning and commissioning, and then in grace saying, Follow me in my business. 
peace awaits you. Spiritual peace, potentially peace in our society, which we need. By goodness do we need it. And when hardships come, God the Father through Jesus Christ promises to be there with us, never leaving or forsaking us. In the story was Ryan a rotten turd? Amen. If you came into my office and said, I have a son like Ryan, can you help my wife and I or my husband and I, I would go, you might have to go tough love on this one. <laughs> in the story, was the older brother Christopher justified in some of his thought and words? I don't know if we should talk to our dads in the way he did, but we get it, right? Amen, yeah. In the story is the grace put forth by this man, William or Bill, does it melt your heart? Because that's what Jesus is trying to tell you. I cannot sufficiently explain God's love for you or me. I can only tell you what he's already said. Paul, Peter, Jeremiah, amen. But Jesus telling shocking parables about the love and grace of God. Luke 15 is all about grace. We'll end it this way. A couple verses. So God truly has the last word. Luke 1531, the end of this little story I tried to modernize. And he said to him, son, this is speaking to Christopher, the older son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and now he's found. That's how the father in the parable answered the older son. A couple of verses before, Luke 15.10. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke 15.7, one story before. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to, or not need repentance. That's a church word. It's a scary word. I'll end with this. When did Ryan repent in our little story? Just think. Loaded question in church, right? We could talk about it for days. The right answer, he started to repent, which I'll tell you what it means. We get the word metamorphosis and transformation and all these Greek words. It literally means, in Luke 15 when it's used, and Luke used it, to see correctly. If I don't see God and don't know he's good and don't know of his love and grace, I will never taste it. Paul talks about that in Romans 10. That's the commission that we have. But when we see and experience God's love and grace, our whole world is shattered and we see things correctly. So in that kitchen, when, steers, when tears come coming down, he repents. Ryan changes the way he sees things and remembers his father's goodness and then returns home. And the trick question is he continues to repent because it's not a get quick pill, right? It's an attitude of humility saying, I want to see God. I want to see more correctly. I want to follow him. I want to be a part of this thing. I'm going to obey. And we can talk about that for sermons upon sermons. I wanted you to hear about the love of God on the fourth Sunday of Advent. I hope you did. God is gracious and kind. 
God offers repentance to all while our hearts are beating. It's not a scary thing. It's simply saying, Lord, let me see you. Let me follow you. Forgive me. And the main reason I have a job is to talk to people about repentance. And it's a loving thing. So if you have questions or comments, come find one of us. We'll talk more about it. We cordially invite you here New Year's Eve. It'll be a great service. We'll end with communion and candlelight singing. Christmas Eve. Did I say New Year's? I was repenting. No, I'm just kidding. Um, let me say that again. We invite you on Christmas Eve, this Saturday, the 24th, 5 p.m. And just a reminder, no class before church next Sunday. No big shindig after go be with your family. Why don't you guys stand with me as we close? And uh, hope you can walk out of here maybe understanding a little bit more of the love of God. And we can talk till eternity about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this season. Thank you for some brief moments to uh, settle down and sing and worship and pray and then reflect upon Jesus. Thank you for the love displayed throughout all the scriptures. And thank you for the, in a sense, megaphone of Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. Help us see your beauty. Help us see your grace. And help us continue to repent and see clearly and walk and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.